Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much for the welcome. It's uh, so brilliant uh, to be here. For those of you not familiar, uh, my name is Dave. I'm married to Amanda. We have Hannah and John T. I, I grew up um, as part of this church family, um, now ministering in uh, a place called West Malling near Maidstone in Kent. And it was just really special to hear uh, Christine is a woman of God. Um, uh, when I was about five years old, I was in the boys' brigade here in the Robins. We had red jumpers. And we were playing football in the school hall at Deerham Road. And I, I, I was fully stuck into this game. And I went for the ball. And I smacked my head against the radiator. A health and safety job sued the ch- No, I didn't. <laughs> um, no, uh, and I got this cut in my head. And what I remember was that Christine ministered to me that day. Uh, she went to the tuck shop. She got out a Cadbury's cream egg. <laughs> and I started, well, I'd never seen one before. I just remember sticking the whole thing in my mouth in one big go. And uh, yeah, she is a mighty woman of God, is our Christine. It's just that um, if anybody wants to give me a cream egg afterwards, you are also blessed and mighty as well. So should we just, uh, should we just pause? There's a verse in chapter six of Judges. Um, that really struck me in my preparation today. And uh, I just thought, as a way in, we'd just start with that. From chapter 6, verse, verse 20, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, which I, I really think is a symbol of Jesus, uh, the rock, as, as, the, as the Israelites were led through the desert, there is this rock. And there is a thought, there is this sense that through that desert, the, the pre-incarnated Jesus, the word who was to become flesh, the rock was with them every step of the way. The rock was with them. And this rock again, take the meat on the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And I just felt this morning, we just lay ourselves on the rock, don't we? We lay ourselves on the rock of Jesus and we ask that he would consume us. We, we just are looking for the touch of God in our lives. And my prayer this morning is that every single soul in this place, from the oldest to the very youngest, would have a touch from, from, from God on our hearts. So, Father, we just pray you would do that today, that, that your fire would come forth from the rock consuming us, that your glory would be seen, that your glory would be made known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in his book, Dirty Glory, Pete Gregg, tells this story. He says, I find myself traveling around England with Justin Welby in the week prior to his enthronement as the 105th Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, wherever he stopped, crowds converged for a day of prayer at the local cathedral. And quite by chance, the final day of this tour was to be in Chichester, the picturesque Roman city where the 24-7 prayer movement had begun. 
attempting to walk through the crowd outside the cathedral, Justin Welby passed by a Costa Coffee delivery van. Its driver was sitting in his cabin, helplessly adrift in a sea of pilgrims, saving the nation from bad coffee, boasted the slogan. That's a vision, isn't it? That's a vision to lay hold of. Saving the nation from bad coffee, boasted the slogan, immediately above the new archbishop's head. Wherever we stopped on our prayer tour, Justin Welby would make a powerful speech about his three great priorities. The primary objective, he would say, is a renewal of prayer and the religious life. And he would then point out that there has never been, to the best of his knowledge, a revival in the church that did not begin with a renewal of prayer. We are not just the Rotary Club with a pointy roof, he would say. That is why prayer must come first. Without prayer, there will be no renewal of the church. And without a renewal of the church, there is very little hope for the world. Let let me read that once again. It will come up on the screen. Without prayer, there will be no renewal of the church. And without a renewal of the church, there is very little hope for the world. Do you know, sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes the task can seem impossible. In the last couple of years, there was a British social attitude survey. And it showed that 53% of adults describe themselves, like within the UK, as having no religious affiliation. Apparently, almost three out of four 18 to 24-year-olds say they have no religion. We, we live in a changing and shifting time, don't we? I think the exciting thing is that there's a blank canvas. There's an opportunity to paint Jesus in our nation. But, you know, sometimes I, I, I pray for the town we live in, West Malling, and I think to myself, do I really believe that we can take this town? I, you know, I think sometimes about Offham Road where we live, can we take that street? I'd be just chuffed if my next door neighbour came to Jesus. You know, um, sometimes the task can feel impossible. Sometimes it feels that the odds are stacked against us. This is the context. I'm sure that's dad and me as a, as a youngster. Um, <laughs> do you know, um, this is the context of Gideon. Look at the opening of chapter 6. Well, this is what we're thinking about today. If ever there was a story where the odds are stacked, it is, it is Gideon. Look at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 6. This gives something of the context. We, we didn't have time to read all the story of Gideon. We get, went for the central chapter. But back in chapter 6, we get the context, verses 1 and 2. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midianites was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And then in verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to help for the Lord. Do you know, uh, Israel was in a desperate place. 
It, if we're being really honest, I love the way that when Gideon asks him about why, why are we in this mess, God is real. There's a sense of reality. Look, I released you from Egypt. We had this covenant. We had this agreement that I will be your God and you will be my people. But, but once again, you've, you've gone in your own direction. You think that you don't need me. You've lived as if, you know, with just you in my pocket, irrelevant to your daily living. You just want a bit of God, but you don't want to be consumed by him. And that's why you're in the situation. And as a result, they were being absolutely crushed by, by the Midianites. It was like wave after wave. If, if, whenever the harvest came, like, like locusts, they would come and take every single resource. Israel was being crushed. Where was the hope? There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Have you ever been in that place? Have you ever been in a situation where, where to be quite honest, you're thinking, how is this going to end? Where is the light? That was Israel. That was Israel at that time. Sometimes the task can seem wholly stacked against us. And this is where we meet Gideon. Gideon felt really little. In fact, actually, when Gideon describes himself, we actually see his self-esteem is, 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 is vir virtually zero. He felt like the least of the least. Listen to how he describes himself. In, in chapter 6, verse 15, he says, But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Do you know, sometimes we can have a distorted perspective of ourselves. I want to say today that the truest thing about you is what God says about you, not what anybody else says about you. The truest perspective of your life is the perspective of the living Lord God upon you. And sometimes we listen to all the voices. Sometimes stuff about ourselves gets stuck. Our self-image is distorted. We only see in part. But one day we shall, we shall know in fullness, just as we are fully known. The one who fully knows us says the truest things about us. Do not believe the lie of the devil. Just don't believe it. Brush it off. This is how God viewed Gideon. What does God say about his son Gideon? He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's great, isn't it? Turn to the person next to you and declare that they are a mighty warrior. You know, even just... Why don't you look like a mighty warrior? You know. Seriously, do you feel like a mighty warrior today? No. <laughs> Come on, that's what God says you are. Do you know, I'm with you. Sometimes the last thing on the planet that I feel is mighty. Quite often I feel little and weak. I've got to go and have a conversation with somebody. And the last thing on the planet I want to do is go and have that conversation, that awkward conversation. 
But I know for the sake of the church, I know in terms of God's leadership, in order to, to, to live out my life with God, you've sometimes got to face it out and you don't feel strong, do you? You feel anything but strong. We all have to have those situations. And, and we feel like Gideon, but God says, in my strength, in my name, you are a mighty warrior. Guess what? Gideon didn't feel like he could take on the Midianites. And yet God used him for a mighty victory. So in these moments that we're together, I want to ask the question, how do we see God's victory in our lives? How do we see God's victory on a Monday morning? What are you going to be doing this time tomorrow? 10 to 12 tomorrow, what are you facing? How are you going to see God's victory in your life? Well, from this story, I just want to pick out two really simple things that we can take with us today. First thing to notice in this story is that we see God's unusual strategy. God has an unusual strategy. Chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the, um, the hill of March. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. I don't want to hear that if I'm Gideon. I really don't. You have too many men. No, I don't. I'd like a few more, please. Do you know, the strategy of God, if I can say this, um, uh, it seems totally ridiculous. The strategy of God seems totally ridiculous. First of all, to be honest, Gideon seems like a ridiculous choice of leader. He hardly inspires the confidence here. I mean, when you're in the, not that I've been in the trenches, but you want to have confidence in the bloke who's saying, we can do this. Am I right? You, you don't want to look at your leader and think, I, I have got no idea why he's been chosen. That's not the best way to go about it. That's, that's not great. But I am pretty convinced that some of the generals behind his back were thinking, what are we doing here, lads? How are we going to take this one? Look what we've got. We've got Gideon. The leader, and I'm not down on Gideon, it wasn't his fault, God's chosen him. You know, he hardly inspires confidence. And then we come to the dynamic of numbers. Not only have we got a leader that we're not really convinced by, but then we go through this selection process. In chapter 8, verse 10, we get a, let's size up the enemy first of all. Let's see what we're up against. In chapter 8, verse 10, if we do the maths, we'll get a sense. It says, now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkos with a force of about 15,000 men. All the, this is after the victory. We get a sense of how much loss the enemy have taken, which, if you work it out, shows what they're up against. There was a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. And so if we do the maths of that verse, we see that the army of Midian had started with 135,000. They were like locusts. You can't count their camels. There's loads of them. And so what about the Israelite army who are up against them? Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Anyone who trembles with fear 
may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. And so the maths of this verse says that Israel started with 32,000. 135,000, could we just see this? 135,000 versus 32,000. And God says to Gideon, you've got too many men. Hang on a minute. Are you sure? And then, and then it gets worse. Because then God says to Gideon, look, any of the blokes are a bit afraid here. They're no good to you. Send them home. And so Gideon says, anybody here a little bit afraid? You can go home. Wow, that's the result. 22,000 bears off back to Gilead. Oh, my goodness. Are you sure you're feeling afraid? Yeah, I'm feeling afraid. And so you're left with 10,000. Okay, this is a crack force. This is a men of courage. Yeah, we, we didn't need those other 22,000. We'll go with the ones who are not afraid. Yeah, let's go for it. And then, and then there's this little thing goes on. They get to water. They're really thirsty. And then God says, those that just dunk straight in, you know, like one of those dogs that just... I, I, I played cricket with a builder who'd got this faithful dog, and he used to get a stone, and he'd chuck the stone in the bucket, and the dog was straight in. Do you know what I mean? And it was like funny about five times and stuff like that. But, but, but that's, it was just like this. Those that are like the dog going for the stone, head right into the bucket, they can all go home. They're no good. And so Gideon's watching. He's probably got his, his general with him. Tick him off. Oh, yeah, he's a dunker. He's a dunker. Oh, he's, he's lapped. At the end of it, he's left with 300. 300. And so now, seriously, the resources are absolutely crazy. I mean, spare a thought if you're one of the 300. I'm sure I dunked. I'm sure I dunked. I'm, I'm sure I did. Give me another chance. No, you lapped. You're in. Do you know, there's 300. The, cra the, the resources are now crazy. So we have to ask ourselves, what actually is going on here? What's it all about? God doesn't make mistakes. What is the strategy? The strategy is this. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me my own strength has saved me. Do you know, the victory has to be God's victory. It really does. There is no other way. Humanly speaking, the resources were puny. But what about the resources of God? What about the resources of God? If you're anything like me, so often you only turn to God after all my resources are spent. After I've tried to do everything in my own strength and then it's kind of failed or not seen the breakthrough, then I might go to God. You know, we're so accustomed, aren't we, to trying to solve everything ourselves, to do everything our way, in our thoughts, in our strategy. And, and often we can come to God as an afterthought, can't we? This was a lesson. This was a lesson. Look, if I send your army in, and you win, you're all going to say, oh, what a great victory. I am whittling it down because I want you to learn about me. I want you to learn about my strength and my 
resources. It has to be his strategy for his victory. So the first thing to notice, perhaps if we go to the next one, Naomi, the first thing to notice is that God has an unusual strategy. But then secondly, we see that not only is it an unusual strategy, God has unusual weapons. Look at verse 16 to 18. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Verse 18. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, once again, let's go through this. It seems to me bad enough that the army has been whittled down to 300. But I was thinking about this. You know, 300 is not too bad if you've got amazing weapons. Now, do you know, I've never been in the military. I'm not an expert at military strategy. But I know if I've got bigger firepower, like if I'm in a water fight and I've got a super soaker against a pistol, I'm fairly confident. You know, this happened, you know, if I've got the bucket of water bombs, Jonty's got no chance. Do you know what I mean? Just take him out in the back garden, not a problem. Do you know, 300 is not that bad if you have amazing weapons. God could have given them cannons. He could have given them, seriously, he could have given them machine guns. He could have given them a spitfire. He could have given them bazookas. He could have given them rocket launchers and tanks. The list goes on. God could have resourced the 300 men so that this was not a problem. Do you get what I mean? They could have been resourced. But what did God give them? All right, Gideon, bring your, bring your generals. We're going to show you the arsenal here. Let's see what you've got. We're going to give you some trumpets, some torches, and some empty jars. Woo! Wow! Do you know, you can imagine the army saying, are you sure, Gideon? Do you know, a ridiculous choice of leader, a ridiculous strategy, and now these weapons. How are we going to find the, the Midianites with all that? How are we going to do this? The point is this. In the hands of God, the, you know, the torches the trumpets, the jars. In the hands of God, these weapons were powerful. They were mighty. And I want to say today that the weapons of God are unusual but powerful. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. Paul writes, For the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary... They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Do you know, I sometimes think we miss the significance of what God has given us. Do we really see the power of prayer? Do you know, I don't think we even begin to see just how much of the heavenly resource is unlocked when we surrender on our knees and come before God with heartfelt cry for our situations. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that when we pray, 
God moves. Do we really see the power of praise? We have been so blessed, haven't we? By the, the choir of power and beauty. I, I suggested to Dad, like we've got a choir, you could join them, Dad, this morning. I said that to him. I, I think it'd fit in quite well, but I'll, I'll, I'll link you up later. Do you know? But, but praise pushes back the kingdom of darkness. Prayer unlocks the door. We see the power of forgiveness. When we forgive a brother or sister, something breaks. Do we really see the power of the gospel shoes that God wants us to strap on our feet? He has given us everything we need. The Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you know, an instrument in the hand of God is powerful. If every single one of us, just like that sacrifice that was placed on the rock and then was consumed, seriously, if every single one of us just laid ourselves down on the altar of Jesus and let his fire consume us, I, I, I honestly feel we have no idea how, how life-changing, how transformative that would be. Take, for example, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist from Chicago. You may, have, you may have heard of him. He wasn't highly educated, but he had a passion for souls. Before he came to England in the summer of 1872, he knew that he would have to shake London in order to have a fruitful time throughout the rest of the land. It is estimated that he led a million people to Christ throughout several decades of relentless preaching on both sides of the Atlantic. On one occasion, earlier on in his life, he was talking to a man named Henry Varley. Varley said, you know, DL, the world has yet to see what God will do with one man fully consecrated to him. And Moody thought about that. He mulled it over. The world has yet to see what God will do with one man. You mean any man? You know, Moody was acutely aware he, he, he wasn't an educated person. He said, any man, doesn't have to be an educated man. Any man fully consecrated to him. That was the condition, full consecration to the Lord. And he continued to mull it over and finally he concluded, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. So there we have it, our, our time's gone. Just... Uh, just a bit of a, a recap, just to come to an end. Do you know, sometimes the task can feel impossible, can't it? It might be today that you, you're in a situation where you cannot see light at the end of the tunnel. If, if that's you today, I really want you to take hold of the lessons of Gideon. Sometimes the odds are stacked against us. And we've asked today, how can we see the victory of God? And we've seen in this story two things. God has an unusual strategy. God has unusual weapons. But simply my encouragement to us all today is this. Let us lay hold, let us lay hold of the resources and weapons of Jesus. Let's seek his strategy for his victory. His strategy in our own lives, his strategy in our families, 
his strategy in our communities, his strategy in his world. Amen.